Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody. Uh, like Dale said, my name is Elliot. I'm one of the pastors here. And for the last two Sundays, we've been going through this message series, God Is. And we've been exploring who God is. And so far, as we've talked about this, there's been a lot that we've discovered that you might expect, and then some that you might not expect. And in what we've discovered and what we've learned is that in some ways, God is like us, but then in other ways, God is very different than us. In some ways, he's similar to us in that God is personal. We can, we can relate to him. We can have a relationship with him. He, he's a person. But then at the same time, God's not a force like electricity, and he's not just some energy that moves around. And that's, that's important when we study him to understand that you know, just because Star Wars says that the force is with us and the force may be with you doesn't mean that God is actually a force. God is a person that we can relate to. And then God is very different than us in that God is not just one person like us, but God is actually three persons that make up one being. And this is kind of where we get this idea of the Trinity, which is what we've been talking about. This idea that God is three distinct persons, each person is fully God, and yet there's still only one God. And so through the pages of the Bible, when God comes and reveals himself, he reveals himself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Again, three distinct and unique persons, three individuals, but those three persons make up one God. And as we take time and we explore how God reveals himself, and we explore these different names, we start to see that each of these three persons plays a very unique role. And so last week we started and we looked at the Father. And we saw how the Father is the one who he exerts his will on creation. He's the one that comes up with plans. He's got a plan for us. He's got a will for us because he is good and he's loving and he wants what's best for us. So he has a will and he exerts that on creation. But if, if his will, if his plan is going to come to fruition, if things are going to be set in motion and it's actually going to happen, someone has to implement that plan. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the reality that the Son is the one who implements the plans of the Father. When we talk about the different roles that the members of the Trinity play, the Father is the one who has the will. He's the one who comes up with the plans but then the Son is the one who implements the plans of the Father. We see this in the book of Hebrews. It kind of lays out for us how this all works. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says this. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So what that's referring to is kind of like in the Old Testament. The first two-thirds of the Bible, God spoke through prophets. But then it says this. It says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, referring to Jesus. Jesus has come and revealed who God is and how he wants us to live. Whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, referring to the Son, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now these verses, these three verses in Hebrews, they, they reveal this idea that the Son is the one who implements the plans of the Father, and at the same time, it reveals two of the great plans that the Father has, and those plans are creation and then salvation. 
And you see both of these in this passage. It refers to the universe being made, and it also refers to purification of sins. But then when you kind of sit and you consider this, you see that the Son is the one who actually implemented those. The Son is the one who brought those about. So this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at creation, and then we're going to look at salvation, and we're going to see how the Son implements these plans of the Father. So let's start by looking at creation and ask the question, how does the Son implement the Father's plan of creation? So in the beginning, the Father is the one who he creates something out of nothing. He's the one who has this plan to make something like this universe and this world that we see, something that's beautiful and yet complex and has order, something that we can live in and where life can be sustained and life can, can thrive in this environment. The Father is the one who came up with that plan. But then it says this, it says that it was made then through the Son, through whom he also made the universe. So the Son is the one who everything was made through. But then after the Son creates, he doesn't just step back and go distant, but he actually stays involved, and it says that he's sustaining all things by his powerful word. The idea there in sustaining is he's, he's, he's helping it continue to work. He's holding it together. And this is an important idea, and this is really fascinating. I, I actually think that this is really, really cool when it presents this idea that the Son is the one who's holding everything together. Because if you think about this, if you think about when this passage was written, about, about 2,000 years ago, when they looked at the physical world around them, when they saw a rock, they didn't think that rock needs to be held together. That rock is on the verge of just flying apart into millions of little pieces. When they looked at other people, they didn't think physically they needed to be held together. Mentally, some people might need to be held together, but, but physically, they weren't looking at each other saying, you know, they're on the verge of just losing it, of flying apart. But then over time, as science has developed and we've gotten new technologies and we've discovered more, we've learned about this thing called the atom. And I know we've got some high schoolers in here, and so for those of you who haven't taken chemistry, this is going to be new for you. For those of you that took chemistry in high school like me, this might be a free refresher. You know, I had to go back and review some of this. But as we've discovered the atom, what we've learned is the atom is made up of protons, what, protons, neutrons, and electrons. That's right. And the nucleus is made up of protons and neutrons. Po protons have a positive charge. Neutrons, neutral. Okay, sometimes you might think neutrons, because if proton is positive, then neutron is negative. No, it's neutral. So positive charges and neutral charges. So the, the, the nucleus of the atom is made up of these things that really have a positive charge because of the protons, and the neutrons are neutral. So you've got all these particles in there. Now what happened when you were a kid and you would take two magnets of the same charge and you would try to hold them together? Do you remember what would happen? Would they just attract to each other? No, they would repel each other. And when you're a little kid, my, my grandpa used to have this like, basket of magnets that I would play with. And I would sit there at the dining room table, and I was just convinced that I could somehow make it work. And so I'd just sit there and just try as hard as I could to push these two magnets together. But what happens? As you push them together, what happens? They keep, it keeps slipping. They keep repelling one another. So the nucleus of the atom, the building block of matter, what everything around us is made up of, should fly apart. As we've discovered this more and more, this is something that we've learned. And then in about the 1960s, there was a guy by the name of Peter Higgs, a little science history for you. Peter Higgs, him and another group of scientists, 
they came up with this idea that there, there must be a subatomic particle that holds everything together. Because they realize everything has to be held together. So they said, okay, there's this, there's this particle that's holding everything together. And then in 2013, there's some amazing stuff you can read on this, but in 2013, over in France, they had this particle collider where they would just, they would just crush all this stuff together and, and try to figure out, okay, what is this particle? And it, does this particle exist that, that Higgs came up with, that he theorized about and said, there's got to be this thing holding everything together? And what they found is, yes, in fact, there is at a subatomic level, there's something holding everything together. Now, they know that it exists. They know that it's there. They don't exactly know what it is. But that's so fascinating that at the same time that over the years, as science has learned more and more and discovered more, they've come to the conclusion that there is something holding everything together. At the same time they've come to that conclusion, the Bible says that the sun is the one sustaining all things. It's not, it's not some force holding everything together, but the Bible actually identifies that as a person. That person is the sun. He's the one sustaining creation, holding it all together, keeping it from just flying apart and shooting off into billions and billions of different directions. Here's another passage on this, just to make this more clear that the Bible teaches this. Colossians 1.17 says this. It says, he, referring to the sun, he is before all things. It's important. He, he wasn't created. He's God. He's before all things. It says this, and in him all things hold together. Sometimes we come to this conclusion, and sometimes we're presented with this idea, that you kind of have to draw a line in the sand. And on one side, you've got science, and then on the other hand, you've got the Bible. And so there's kind of this line in the sand, and if you accept science, then you kind of have to reject everything that the Bible says. Or if you accept what the Bible says, then you have to accept everything that science says. And because science is so rational and thoughtful and logical, then if you're going to reject science, then you just must be an irrational person that lives in fantasy land. And so that's kind of this line that's drawn out there. But that's really, that's really a false dichotomy. It's a false separation that shouldn't exist. And the reason that that shouldn't exist is because we need to understand that science and the Bible, they actually take separate approaches to explaining the physical world around us. See, the Bible takes the perspective of it takes an, an approach of a top-down. The Bible is written from the perspective of the puzzle maker, explaining us what the puzzle is and what the puzzle looks like. Science, on the other hand, is taking a bottom-up approach. It takes each individual piece, examines the pieces, analyzes it, runs tests on those pieces, tries to figure out what is this, how does it work, and how does it fit into this puzzle. So it's not that they're in opposition to one another. They're just taking two very separate approaches to the same data set. And science has taken this approach of bottom up, analyzing the pieces. And as science has done this, come to the conclusion, everything is held together by something. The Bible has taken a, from the perspective of the puzzle maker, a top-down approach. And the Bible reveals to us Everything has to be held together, and the one holding everything together is the sun. He's sustaining all things. That's one of the ways that the sun implements the plan of the Father when it comes to creation. See, not only was everything made through him, but then he is actually active, keeping it all together. 
keeping it all working, when it comes to you, when it comes to me, when it comes to this music stand, I mean, this does not look like it needs to be held together. But the Son is the one who is actively sustaining and holding together all of creation. That's how he's implementing the Father's plan. But creation doesn't just need to be held together. Creation actually needs to be saved. Specifically, you and me, we need to be saved. So the Father's first great plan is creation, carried out through the Son. The Son is then holding it all together. The Father's second great plan is salvation. Again, it's carried out by the Son. So let's look at this. Let's look at how the Son implements the Father's plan of salvation. Now we, we as humans, as people, we are unique in all of creation. And we can come to this conclusion by observation. I mean, we can just observe the world around us, observe other stuff that's been created, and come to the conclusion that we are very unique. And we also know this intrinsically. Internally, we have this understanding that that we are, we are on a different level. There's something of value about us. And this last week, if you paid attention to the news at all, you've seen all these stories and all these images coming out of what's happening down in kind of the Houston area, in that region of Texas and also in Louisiana, where Hurricane Harvey hit and has caused an, in, an insane amount of devastation. And while that storm, while Hurricane Harvey, really in, on a lot of levels is a record-breaking storm, I mean, one, the size, the, the, the area where it hit, and then the amount of water that, that was dropped on that region. I mean, it, it just topped the record charts. But if that storm, let's say, would have hit in the middle of the ocean with nobody around, it wouldn't have captured our attention. It wouldn't consume the news cycle. If that storm wouldn't have made landfall, but maybe in a less populated or, or an area where there's not a lot of human life around, Again, it wouldn't have gotten the attention. But it gets the attention it does, and rightfully so, because we understand that human life is valuable. And human life is unique. And when, when, when humans are in trouble and when their lives are at risk, they need to be rescued. They need to be saved. We, we understand this. And one of the things that, that Harvey and the response and the attention that that storm and those lives impacted have received, one of the things that that points to, something that tragedy points to, is a tragedy that we really don't see. And that is our perilous situation as a result of sin. That's an even greater tragedy. See, one of the things that makes us unique is the fact that we have souls. And our souls are dependent upon God for life. And one of the decisions that we've made is the Father, he, he has these plans. He has a way that he set up life and the world to work. But what we've done is we've really come up with our own ideas and our own plans. And so instead of doing life the way that God instructs us to and the way that he intends it to be done, we've gone and we've done life our own way. And while we might excuse that away and act like it's not that big a deal, the Bible actually refers to that as rebellion. We've entered into rebellion against God. Another term the Bible uses to describe that is the word sin. We've entered into sin, and we have separated ourselves from God. We've separated ourselves from our source of life. And because of that decision, what's happening on the inside is the, the floodwaters are rising. The floodwaters of sin are rising. And it's only a matter of time before we slip below the surface 
And that separation that we caused between us and God, it's only a matter of time before that is made permanent for all of eternity. But thankfully, in his mercy, God the Father, he came up with a plan. He initiated a plan, and the Son is the one who carries out that plan of salvation for us. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. It says this, it says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. What this passage is describing is it's describing a rescue mission. And at the very beginning, it outlines God's objective. It says, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, the Father's plan is to pull us out of the rising floodwaters of sin and to bring us to glory to be with him. That, that's the objective. That's what's been set out to do. But in order for that rescue mission to happen, what's required is Jesus coming into the storm, coming into the floodwaters, becoming like one of us. It's not a rescue that could be accomplished remotely. You know, he couldn't just, you know, send something in the mail or, you know, do something on some, you know, electronic remote. He had to come himself, boots on the ground were required in order to rescue us from this storm. And something that I think is so cool about what happens when he comes and rescues us is when we accept his offer, we actually gain an older brother. So what this says, it says Jesus is not ashamed to call them, those he saved, brothers and sisters. So when he comes and he offers to save us, we're, we're actually gaining an older brother unlike anyone that we've ever had. And when it comes to sin, and when it comes to the salvation we need, those, those individuals who are in Houston, when they grab hold of the hand of the rescuer, for them, they're not to safety yet. In, a, in reality, the journey is just beginning. And it's similar when it comes to accepting this salvation that Jesus offers us. When we grab hold of, our, of his hand, and he becomes our older brother in that moment, when that happens, it's really just the beginning. Because just like, just like an atom has to be held together, when Jesus grabs hold of our hand, it's just the beginning of the process of pulling us to safety. There's continual work that has to take place. And so as our older brother, he then is working for us in terms of salvation. And he's working for us in two ways. The first way he's working for us is he leads us. This is how he continually works for us. You know, to make it out of this hurricane of sin that we're stuck in, we really need a leader. We need someone who has been through this and knows the way out and can show us the way out. Someone who is not currently stuck like we're stuck, but somebody who can lead the way. And in this passage I just read in Hebrews 2, I want to highlight a few things for you so you can see how Jesus does this. One of the things it says is it says that Jesus is the pioneer of their salvation. A pioneer is the one who goes first, the one who goes into uncharted territory and, and understands what's going on and discovers it and then can lead others through it because they were the first one to go. That's what it's saying. It's saying Jesus is the pioneer. He was the first one to go. He was the first one to make it out, and so he knows the way out. And then right after that, it says, says that he was made perfect through what he suffered. 
Now, this is important. And when it says he was made perfect, it's not saying in some way Jesus was imperfect. But it's saying that he was made perfect through what he suffered. So the idea there is because he came, he came and took on, he became a man. He didn't, he didn't play dress up. It wasn't God playing pretend. But no, when, when Jesus came, it was God in flesh. He was fully human. He didn't give up what it meant to be God, but he became fully human. When he did that and he came, he experienced what we experience. And so because he went through those same experiences as us, because he came and he suffered, that means he's the perfect one to save us. Because again, for him, this isn't just kind of pretend. This isn't just like fun. He's not just playing. No, he came and he lived among us and he knows what's going on. And so because of that and because he made it out, he then can turn to us and offer us his hand and say, here, follow me. I can show you the way out. So Jesus is not only the pioneer, he's the perfect one to save us because he came and he entered the storm. Now, sometimes people will suggest that, okay, because God, because Jesus was God in flesh, he was still fully God, he kind of had this unfair advantage that we don't have. He had this advantage over sin that we don't have. And in a sense, that's true, but then at the same time, it's not true. I mean, Jesus is God, so he has more power over sin than we do, but then something that we don't always think about is the fact that because Jesus never sinned, and he continued to resist, the amount of pressure and temptation and suffering that he experienced was far greater than anything that we'll ever experience. I mean, if we're just honest with ourselves, when it comes to temptation, when it comes to sin, being tempted to sin, maybe being in a difficult situation where there's pressure to sin, we give in pretty easily. It really doesn't take much to get us to go against God. But with Jesus... He came, and he never sinned. So the longer he resisted, the more intense the suffering got, the more intense the pressure and the temptation. In reality, he took everything the enemy had to throw at him, and it just kept getting more and more intense until he finally defeated it. So yeah, in a sense, he does have an advantage, but then at the same time, he went through way more than us. But then if you step back from kind of this debate that sometimes people have about, well, he was fully God and fully man, so he had this advantage. If you step back from that and kind of take a little different perspective, and you think of it from the perspective of, okay, you're in a flood channel, trapped in these waters, there's debris all around you, you can't swim out, you're exhausted, you're drowning. It's only a matter of time. You're stuck in this flood channel, and there's somebody... They have one foot on dry ground, they have one foot in the water, and they're reaching out their hand to you, offering to save you. In that moment, are you going to say, hey, no fair, you got a foot on dry ground. You need to be in the water here just like me to be able to save me. No way. You're going to grab a hold of their hand and let them pull you to safety. See, it's the fact that Jesus has the advantage of having one foot on the dry ground and one foot in the water that even allows him to offer salvation in the first place. So sometimes these little petty debates that people get into and, oh, well, he was fully God, fully man, so he actually can't relate to us. No, no, no. The fact he has that advantage is the only reason he's even able to offer us salvation in the first place. And so he's standing there, and he's got one foot on dry ground, one foot in the water, and he's reaching out his hand, offering us to rescue. And for him to become our older brother, 
What we then have to choose to do is we've got to grab a hold of his hand. And when we do that, we gain an older brother. And we gain a leader. And we need that because we are still in this flood water of sin in this life. And the sad reality is we have hearts that are actually drawn to this. And so we need Jesus not only to lead us, but the second way that he continuously works for us, we need Jesus to defend us. We need Jesus to be our defender. And this is something that he does for us. He, he implements the plan of the Father by saving us, by leading us, and then he also comes to our defense. This is a, uh, a picture of my older brother and I, Stuart. And um, it was recently taken. We do a race together every year, a relay race. And so we were um, at the race this last year getting ready. And my brother, he's four years older than me. Because I'm taller, sometimes people think I'm older, which really rubs him the wrong way. But he's four years older than me. And over the years, he's really become one of my closest friends. But it wasn't always like that. Because growing up, I, I'm the third born, and I'm the little brother. I'm a middle child, because there's four of us. So for those other middle children in the room and parents that have kids, you know, three or four kids, you kind of understand the middle child's usually the difficult one. So, I mean, honestly, I was the one that my parents had to pray to love. You know, some of the other siblings, they're like, we just love this kid. But for me, I was the difficult one in the family. And when it came to my brother, I was really an antagonist. I mean, I just, I would drive him up the wall. I mean, I remember one time, he's 16, I'm 12, and he's kind of just getting into weights. You know, he just got his driver's license. He's, he can go on dates now. You know, he's starting to lift, you know, trying to get all buff for the girls. And he's into weights, and he would be in the garage lifting, and he would be like, hey, Elliot, will you come spot me? So I would go out there, and I'm, a, you know, I'm 12. I don't know what I'm doing. And so he's on the bench press, you know, you know, repping out, and so I'm, I'm there, and I'm, you know, I'll help him, and so one day, he's like, hey, I need you to come help me with my last set, so I go out there, and he's, he's pressing, and I got this idea, okay, when he, when he asks for help, I'm going to act like I'm helping, but I'm actually going to work against him, so he's, he's on his last rep, he's pushing up, I put my hands under the bar, and then I put my thumbs on top of the bar, so I act like I'm lifting, but I'm actually pushing down, and so he's pushing, and it's already difficult for him, and all of a sudden it gets a lot more difficult, and he starts yelling, help. He's like, help, help. And I'm like, I'm like I am. I, I just don't think I'm strong enough. And I'm pushing down. And then, and you know, he's, he's squirming under the bar, like just trying to get like every ounce of energy to get it up. And then I started, you know, as an immature, antagonistic, annoying, ornery little brother, I, a smile came across my face because it was like, my plan is working. And when that happened, my brother under the bar, he saw this and he instantly realized what was happening. And a rush of adrenaline came over him and that bar exploded so fast off his chest. I have never moved so quick in my life. I knew my brother was going to beat me silly. I knew it. So I got out of there and I ran and I hid. What's interesting about my brother is even though I was not an easy little brother. Whenever I was in trouble, and I mean, I was notorious in the neighborhood. I would, you know, I would get in fights and start trouble. And, but whenever I was in trouble or whenever, you know, there was something happening and I needed somebody to defend me, I knew my brother always had my back. And not only did I know that, but every kid in the neighborhood knew that. They knew if Elliot's in trouble, 
Stuart's going to step in, and he's going to intervene, and he's going to defend Elliot. And the reality is, is there is no better brother to have defend you than Jesus Christ. He is the absolute best brother you can have when it comes to the type of defense that you need. This is what it says in 1 John chapter 2. It says this. It says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. So what he's referring to is, I write this to you. It's the beginning of chapter 2. He's saying, I wrote chapter 1 so that you won't sin. That's the goal. The goal is now that you've been rescued, now that you have this leader, now that you have this defender, you've accepted the hand of your older brother, the goal is not to sin. And then he writes this. He says, but if anybody does sin, so it's not an excuse, it's not a throw in the towel, but it's a reality. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, there's a lot of really important ideas here in this passage, and I want to kind of pull some of them out. The first one is it it says that Jesus is an advocate with the Father. Why do we need an advocate with the Father? Why do we need someone to step in for our defense? Well, the reason is, is the Father, again, he's the one with the will. He's the one with the plan. He's the one who decided how everything was supposed to be. So when we sin, what we're saying to his plan is we're saying, you know what, God, I have a better idea. I'm going to go do this instead. And so sin, actually, we, you know, we view it as, oh, it's between me and this other person. But really, it's between us and the Father. We've sinned against the Father because we've rejected his will. We've rejected his plan, and we've come up with our own. So sin is actually against the Father. And then at the same time that that's going on, this this passage doesn't bring this up, but the idea is there, there's this enemy we have, and his name is Satan. And Satan's name actually means accuser. And so while we need a defender before the Father, there's somebody actually accusing us before the Father. He's saying, see what they did? You see that sin? They don't deserve your love. They don't deserve to be forgiven. You need to punish them. So there's this accuser out there that's bringing these accusations, and, and they're actually they're accurate accusations because we did sin. But then what happens is Jesus, he's then our defender. It refers to him as our atoning sacrifice. And that's really significant. The, the idea of atonement or, or one that atones is the idea is they're, they're the one who reconciles. And reconciliation is when you have two parties who are in conflict and then they're brought together. The barrier that's causing the conflict is removed, and they can now be at one. That's what it means to atone. Atone is the word at plus one. So what Jesus does is he comes, and through paying the price of our sin, paying our debt, he makes us at one with the Father. He removes the barrier of sin so that then that relationship can be restored. There's There's not conflict. There can be reconciliation. We can be at one. That's what Jesus does. So imagine this with me. Imagine in the courtroom of heaven, you're standing there before the judge's seat. In the judge's seat is the Father. You're standing there in the courtroom, and on the monitors in the courtroom, your sin is being played for everybody to see. They've got it on video. They can prove that it's you. You know that it's you. Now, usually here what we do when we sin is we, we excuse it. We justify it. We come up with a reason. Well, you know, I wouldn't have done that if they wouldn't have done this. 
or I wouldn't have behaved that way if the circumstances weren't going in this direction. Or, you know what, it's just the way I am. You need to get over it. So we've got all these excuses. We justify it. We've got all these reasons we can give, and we kind of we push it down and suppress it and act like it's not that big a deal. But in the courtroom of heaven, when we're standing there before the Father, and our sins being played on the video screens, there's not going to be any denying it. It's going to be perfectly clear, not only to us, but to everyone around what we did and the implications of it. And the accuser is going to be saying, see, I told you. See what they did? They should not be forgiven. They should not be loved. They should be punished. They should be rejected. They should be thrown out and declared guilty. And then the judge turns to us and he asks us to enter a plea. And in that moment, we know we're stuck. We know we're guilty. But then, sitting right there next to us is our older brother, Jesus Christ. And so, in all of his glory, and all of his splendor, he puts his hand on our shoulder, and he stands up. And you can imagine, in the courtroom of heaven, the air is just sucked out of that place. I mean, here is Jesus, the Son of God, standing up for us after what everyone just saw us do on film. And he stands up for us, puts his hand on our shoulder, and he says, Father, this is my brother, or this is my sister, and they have asked me to stand in their defense because they know that they're guilty. And Father, I gave my life for what you just saw. I paid the price for that sin, and it's finished. You could just imagine the courtroom. I mean, just completely silent. And then the father, the judge, he says, not guilty. Not because of what we've done, but because our older brother, Jesus Christ, is the atoning sacrifice, and we've accepted his offer to stand in our place. And so he stands, and you know what the judge says? He says, case closed. Jesus is our defender. And because we're going to continuously sin, unfortunately, even though we are to try not to, the reality is that we're fallen. That means Jesus is going to stand for us again and again, and he's going to defend us. We need a defender. This is what it says in Acts 4.12. It says this. It says, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And what this is saying is it's saying that you can look high, you can look low, you can try really, really hard, you can act like you've never sinned and you don't need a Savior, but the reality is is there is only one who's come. There's only one who has come and, and, and taken on a human body and become a man and entered into our experience and gone through it perfectly without sinning and knows the way out and can offer us salvation. There's only one that's done that. There's only one that has one foot on the shore and one in the river and is extending their hand and offering us salvation. And that's Jesus. That's the Son. That's how he implements the plan of the Father of salvation. 
one of the things when I've watched these events in Houston, one of the things I find so interesting is how those people, when they're saved, when they grab the hand of the rescuer, they leave everything behind because they know that living is far more important and is a greater thing to experience than holding on to all this stuff. So they leave everything and they get in the boat or they get in the basket because they understand I need to be saved. And I think that is such a good picture of what it looks like to make a decision to follow Jesus. When, when Jesus extends his hand and he offers us salvation, in order to grab hold of his hand, there's stuff that we're going to have to let go of. But so often, the basket's been dropped from the helicopter, and the hand is extended, and we're sitting there trying to grab everything that we can and take it with us. But if we're going to accept the offer of Jesus, and if he's going to become our older brother, and if he's going to lead us and defend us, we have to let go of this stuff, and we've got to grab hold. That's what it looks like to follow him. As we wrap up, I want to ask everybody to take out your connection card real quick. Dale talked about this at the beginning. If you can take this out, there's something I want to I highlight on there. On the very front of that connection card, the bottom left, there's a thing that says, my next step today is to. And the very first one says, decide to follow Jesus for the first time. If you have never accepted the hand of Jesus reaching out, offering you salvation, offering to lead you and defend you, the same one that is holding every atom together, then I would encourage you today to consider that and make that decision. Again, the, the hurricane of sin that is the perfect storm until Jesus, the storm that no one could escape, it, it is real and it is spinning, and if we don't reattach to God, that separation is going to be made permanent. But Jesus, he came and he extends his hand and he offers to be our older brother and our leader and our defender. If you haven't made that decision, I would encourage you to check that box because we want to get in contact with you. We want to get you some information and really help support you in that decision, help you learn more about what it means to follow him as you move forward in that. If you guys will join me, I'll wrap up our time in prayer. Father, as we come before you, I first want to just lift up the people whose lives have been impacted by Hurricane Harvey through Texas and Louisiana. And Father, I, I pray for the people who are living in shelters and the people who have had to be rescued and who've lost everything. I, I pray that your, your hand of protection and Um, your blessing would be upon them. I pray for the rescue workers that are still working, all the different levels of whether it's police officers or firemen or emergency response teams that are helping God. I pray that you would protect them in this situation. And then, Father, I pray that in the midst of that tragedy, I do pray that your light would be shown. And I pray that people would not only be saved physically, but their souls would be rescued too from the flood of sin. Father, I pray for us as well. I pray for those in this room who have not yet made a decision to grab the hold of the hand of Jesus. 
and to accept his offer to be their older brother and their leader and their defender. Father, I, I ask for their eyes to be opened to, to what they find themselves in. Father, I pray for the rest of us who have made that decision. I pray, God, that we would again trust in the grip of our older brother who will never let go. And I pray that our understanding of what he's done would, would raise our eyes to see how magnificent and glorious he is. I thank you again for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.